This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. I'm Wong Xiaoning and this is The Breakfast Grill. The World Bank has forecast economic growth of 4% for Malaysia in 2023. At first glance, decent moderate growth considering the weak external demand. But if we peer behind the headline numbers, what are are our structural issues and what should be the economic priorities for this new unity government? To answer these questions, we speak to Dr. Apurva Sanghi. He is the World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia, which recently released their 99-page economic monitor report. Now, uh, Apurva, let's start with the positives. Because in the third quarter last year, Malaysia enjoyed the highest growth rate compared to our regional peers, no thanks to strong exports and robust consumption. But this year, growth will moderate to 4%. Honestly, though, is there more risk to the downside for this projection? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. Shalin, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so we did downgrade our, our growth projection compared to uh, last year. And it's natural because the external environment has worsened so much. And it remains volatile. So just to give you one example, global growth, we project now in 2023 this year is 1.7% which is half of what we expected uh, what we expected 6 months ago right growth in advanced economies in 2023 only 0.5% one of the sharpest slowdowns in the last 5 decades we are projecting us as of now to be 0.3 euro to be uh, the eurozone to be almost uh, almost uh, flat right mm. so in that context for the global growth of 1.7% malaysia's 4% growth is actually reasonable yeah pretty uh, it's, decent uh, it's pretty decent. It's, uh, I would say that's, that's, uh, that's a good thing. And other countries in the region as well. So in, in fact, this region, the East Asia region, has, has proven to be resilient. And of course, Malaysia has the advantage of commodities. But since you mentioned uh, those are headline numbers and it's important to look at behind the scenes, the one downside, uh, there are many downsides, right? But one downside is that this growth has come off um, uh, of high domestic consumption, private consumption. Right, and and part of the reason is EPF withdrawals. Yes, and so this has undermined or worsened uh, old age uh, financial security. So it's important to to not just focus on the headline numbers and see what's driving the growth. So growth in Malaysia remains to be is still driven by consumption rather than investment. Yeah. So we're going to come to that in a minute, but I want to ask: right, are all bets off if let's say there's a sharp increase in geopolitical tensions globally? I mean. We hear overnight over the weekend uh, ratcheting of uh, bad ties between US and China. Let's say, you know, what happens if China invades Taiwan, for example? Is global growth of 1.7% totally off the cards then? You know, given how volatile the geopolitical environment is, uh, we will we will be constantly updating and, and revising our growth forecast. So this is 1.7% global growth as of uh, January, mm-hmm. and let's see what the future holds. But one point I would like to make is that, you know, given what's happening geopolitically, the the Russia-Ukraine war, U.S.-China uh, ge- uh, tensions, it's been a real wake-up call for us economists for how geopolitics has become such a core driver of economy of the economy. We don't have the luxury to sort of think about geopolitics. You know, it's it's a, it's a necessity. Mm. To think about, if you cannot talk about the economy, global or national or domestic, without talking about geopolitics, it's become a co-driver. Yeah, good luck in terms of trying to put it <laughs> into the assumptions, though. Now, Malaysia, clearly we are a very open economy. Uh, 
which makes us very vulnerable, like you say, to a slowdown. But the point I, I have and my real concern here is our current fiscal state leaves us very little room to manoeuvre. And what happens then if we have a global recession? Because we've spent quite a fair bit, right? Our current, uh, our Prime Minister says that our debt is currently 1.5 trillion US dollars and our debt to GDP is close to the statutory limit of 65%. So what's, what, sh- what room do we have to manoeuvre, Apuva? Right. So on, on the fiscal situation, the Prime Minister is absolutely right that the debt to GDP is uh, reaching the statutory limit. Uh, if your listeners are not aware, uh, I found it odd when I first came to Malaysia to find out that Malaysia hasn't posted a fiscal surplus since the Asian financial crisis. Yes. We're running a persistent fiscal deficit. Uh, you know, but having said that, it's important to look at two things, the, the numerator and the denominator, so debt to GDP. So if you can grow the economy, if you can grow the denominator, GDP, the debt to GDP ratio goes down, right? And we can have a separate conversation on what that might take. Um, but when it comes to immediate short-term effects, you can do two things. You you increase revenues or, or, you, you, cut spending. or, you, or you cut spending. And the point that um, we have been making for a while now that – Malaysia has moved, you know, from 10 years back from a medium revenue, medium spending equilibrium to a low revenue, low spending equilibrium. So the room for spending cuts is not that much. So if you don't raise revenues in the absence, uh, if, if, if it just keeps, uh, if, you, if you cut spending in the absence of raising revenues, then that's not going to get you much anymore. Now, of course, there's always some slack that you mm. should plug. But it's really mobilizing revenues is where the action is. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about the spending. I think a lot of it is due to the fact that 56% of government spending is pretty much on salaries, pensions, interest payment, right? Which we can't really change very much. What about leakages though? Um, Because I think there will be questions, especially when it comes to large infrastructure spend. Suddenly there's a lot of questions about how we spend that money. Can we really move the needle there though? So let me go by what uh, MOF has said that they, they could save 10 billion ringgit mm. by plugging in leakages in government procurement. Now, every ringgit saved is a ringgit earned. And that would be, uh, we, we would absolutely welcome that. But in the larger scheme of things, 10 billion is about 0.5% of GDP. Right? If you look at the fiscal deficit, if you look at the decline in revenues, if you look at you know, the overall fiscal situation, as important as that is, it's not going to move the needle per se. Okay, What's so, going to move the needle is really mobilizing more revenues. Okay, so this fiscal deficit target of 5.5% for 2023, is it then too lofty? Um, because this is something the government wants, and a lot of it is also, like you say, revenue-driven. It's petroleum revenue. Mm-hmm. And this year, petrol prices are below our target of 90 US dollars a barrel. So does this number then look too lofty? So that also depends on what happens, for example, to petrol prices. And with China opening up, let's see where commodity prices go. So the year has just begun. (laughs) What about this much-awaited Fiscal Responsibility Act? How important is it for a country like Malaysia? Oh, uh, we believe that the FRA, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, is is overdue now. Uh, So Malaysia, obviously, like many other countries, had to spend uh, a fair bit during the pandemic. And that increased the deficit, increased the debt. But now the time has, the economy is recovering. Mm. And now the time has come to consolidate uh, the fiscal situation and to, uh, to put out a very credible set of rules that would manage the, the debt and deficit, for example. Um, and this is where the FRA needs to, needs to come in soon. Now, a low-hanging fruit for me when it comes to spending 
I think it's our subsidy bill, right? Uh, it's fuel, 2.3% of GDP. And to put things into context, Ministry of Health budget is just 1.9% of GDP. So it makes economic sense to roll out a target subsidy framework since subsidies are regressive. But each government, be it this one or the previous one or the last two ones, have dragged their feet on this issue. So what should be the first step? And is there really no time like the present to actually consider targeted subsidies? So, so I'm glad you brought this up because the other side of the equation was, as I said, uh, raising revenues and the other side was, was cutting costs. And we too believe that in the short term, reducing the subsidy bill would give you the biggest bang for the buck in terms of expenditure saving. Um, now, why hasn't that happened yet? Yes, because it's not a popular measure. It might cost them at the polls. Well, I, I think it may go beyond that, uh, or there might be other reasons. So for example, one legitimate concern policymakers have is if you remove, for example, fuel subsidies, that could lead to inflation. And in fact, in our own analysis in this uh, Malaysia Economic Monitor, we find that that is the case. So we find that if you remove fuel subsidies, uh, complete elimination of fuel subsidies, that could uh, increase inflation by as much as 9%, right? And that, that's a lot, and mostly due to indirect knock-on effects. So, so the answer is then, but the answer is to not uh, is to not not do subsidy reform. The answer is to do it gradually. You mm. know, phase it out and use this window of opportunity of a of the of a political honeymoon that the government has of, of falling commodity prices so that inflationary pressures would recede, and put in place you know gradual removal of of, of subsidies. At least do it for the T twenty. Um, yeah. You know, there's just no justification for why the T20 continue to receive uh, receive these these benefits. Yes, especially for the person that drives a Mercedes or the BMW, right? Why do they still get to enjoy petrol prices just like everybody yeah, else? I, I drive a Honda. I mean, I feel guilty too each time <laughs> I go to the pump. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the other side of the equation, which is revenue, okay? And like you say, uh, that's something we need to address. And I think the the elephant in the room is tax reform. Now, GST, your words, you call it this lean and mean machine that mobilizes revenue best. And those are your exact words. So why are we, you know, why is it, why is there this continuous reluctance to implement it? And it, it's something that the government has said, not this year. Will it really impact consumption? Will it really impact the livelihoods of, of let's say, the vulnerable if we implement GST? So, so you know, GST has to be viewed in the context of a medium-term revenue strategy, and that's the other thing we believe is overdue. Mm. So the first thing is, is the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Second thing is a, a subsidy rationalization um, sort of measures. And the third thing on the macro front is, is medium-term revenue mobilization strategy, and GST is one important component of it. Now, if you just look from a pure financial perspective, GST is indeed a lean and mean machine in, in terms of raking in the most, most revenues. Uh, but no instrument is perfect. There are downsides. The downside to GSC that is that it is regressive. Uh, so how do you address the regressivity? Regressivity is a question. Yes. And there, I think there are ways to do it. Other countries have done it. Uh, and the main way of doing it is to address it by using cash transfers to to basically 
to, to protect those affected by, by the increase, by the potential increase in GST. So simultaneously work on social protection, right? Absolutely. So it's not just implementing tax, but looking at the benefits that the needy or the vulnerable need at the same time. Absolutely. Because the GST is aggressive, uh, that is a downside. So you address it by putting in place cash transfers. And also uh, learn from the experience that Malaysia had. So SMEs, for example. Uh, so, you know, give, establish a threshold for GST that would make it easier for SMEs to to be part of the GST regime. But having said that, as I said, GST is not the only instrument. There are other instruments on the revenue arsenal as well. So, for example, PIT, personal income tax. Yes. Uh, Malaysia collects an awfully uh, low amount of, uh, of personal income tax revenues compared to its peers. And so just uh, lowering the threshold at which citizens pay uh, PIT, could make a big difference. So increasing the, the tax rate for the very top, the marginal tax rate for the very top, which is low in Malaysia compared to other peers, can also make a difference. And, you know, there are so on and so forth. The other instruments we can talk about too, if you wish. Okay, let's hope all this will be implemented in Budget 2023, <laughs> which we will come back to. On the Breakfast Grill this morning is Dr. Apuva Sanghi. He's the World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. When we come back from the break, policy recommendations and how can we expand our digital frontier? BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9. Welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. In the hot seat this morning is Dr. Apuva Sanghi, World Bank Elite Economist for Malaysia. Before the break, painful and necessary fiscal consolidation and GST in that mix. Now, recently... Our Prime Minister has warned that the government debt is close to $1.5 trillion uh, ringgit. And we've addressed it earlier. Now, there's a whole debate about whether that's accurate because does that include government guarantees? But I don't really want to go there. The point is really the debt threshold is high, right? Close to 65% to GDP. Now, what are the consequences for us as a nation if we don't address this though? Well, that means reduce fiscal space to do things that you really want to do. For example, spending more on healthcare, on education. Uh, these are things that Malaysians care a lot about. And I'll just give you sort of one quick example. On Yesterday on my way to Putrajaya, I took a grab. And it's a shout out to, to Iswan, my, my grab driver. And I had an interesting chat with him. So he's, uh, and, and he's listening to this show, by the way, right? And, and he said that, uh, please let them know that I have five children and the cost of tuition, even though tuition is supposed to be free, mm. I cannot afford it because I have to spend on private tuition and teachers don't teach as well as they do and so on and so forth, right? So it's uh, uh, so these are the things that, that the Rakyat cares about. So if you if you don't take care of your fiscal situation, it, it affects, it narrows fiscal spit and it affects on what, uh, what, what you can spend on. Yeah, and I think the recovery, especially post-pandemic, clearly very uneven, right? And I think there's a third round of this World Bank high-frequency phone survey that showed that nearly 70% of low-income households said that they had no inadequate financial resources to meet monthly basic needs, while 60% had no savings. Now, Apurva, this really worries me. And the recent EPF withdrawal schemes likely made matters worse. So what policy suggestions can be implemented to correct this? So uh, the, uh, the, the headline policy recommendation is to improve your social protection. So social protection in Malaysia suffers from uh, both low coverage, as you mentioned, Shannon, as mm. well as adequacy. So what Malaysians get at the you know at the B twenty level, B forty level is is not 
as good as what neighboring countries as as a counterparts in neighboring countries get just as just as an example yes. so you need to expand coverage reduce fragmentation in these uh, in these social protection social assistance schemes uh, as well as improve the uh, the 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 adequacy of benefits and it goes again to ex- having a having a broader fiscal base yes. that can allow you to spend on these things yeah now the other thing of course is food insecurity i think that's been on a rising trend your report highlights the prevalence of it uh, of moderate or severe food security at 15.4% equivalent to 5 million malaysians you know this is shocking we look around and we think we have access when we don't so what should our policy government response be so um let me quickly say in in, in two words is to increase supply mm. So why are food costs high? Well, there are external reasons, of course. You know, food fertilizer prices were were high uh, are high everywhere. But then, how do you address that? Well, you increase supply of these um, of these uh, of these things. So yes. increasing supply reduces costs. It's basic econ one hundred one. So the question is, why isn't why don't you see an increase in supply? Yeah. And and the answer is we had is, issues over eggs. We had issues over yeah. chicken. So and and the answer is that. Um, Well, there are two answers to that. Well, basically, one answer is, is restrictions, is price controls, is subsidies. So, exact what you just said. You have issues over eggs. Why? Because there remain price controls. Uh, you have subsidies provided to agriculture, for example, that go towards rice production. Whereas Malaysians have shifted their the consumption patterns and they spend much more on fruits and vegetables and wheat and cereals. Mm. Yet, rice continues to be subsidized. So, in, in another survey that we did, that we highlight in this report. Uh, we found out that uh, let let me rewind a bit so in the previous mem we found out that malaysia is the one country in the region that has the maximum number of price controls okay wow maximum that number is of price controls an interesting discovery for me yes and guess which sector has the most price controls any guesses agriculture you got it it's yeah. agriculture right so if you have if you have price controls and subsidies put yourself in the shoes of a farmer what incentive does he or she have to produce more or produce the right things or produce the things that Malaysians are spending more on well some people say they would need protection right because otherwise you know they would be forced out of their farms for example well, is there a right balance to strike then so so the, so i i go back to social protection that's the way to protect people who uh, who are vulnerable mm. but in this case you're actually depriving farmers of livelihoods if you keep prices low if they can't earn more revenue okay. they, if they can't earn more you know that's that's something to consider as well and very quickly the 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 it's, it's about it's about pushing costs down by increasing supply and removing these these restrictions and the second is pulling up wages that's the other side of the coin so these are the two basic principles that can help address cost of living in, in yeah. malaysia so i think in malaysia when it comes to unemployment not much of an issue unless we look at maybe the the young between the 15 to 24 uh, year old right where it's about above 10% versus our national average around 3.7 3.8% but i want to come to that and discuss that how do we then actually improve wages in this country because it's been a topic that's been discussed again and again and our total productive in productivity index keeps falling year after year when it comes to wages yeah so so just one quick thing on youth unemployment you mentioned malaysia has high youth unemployment uh, 10 odd percent mm. it's not unusual though yeah in china so, it's very high yeah, so example. malaysia is not an outlier in most countries youth unemployment is high, including in advanced economies and in some ways it reflects the churning of the you don't know what youth unemployment to be too low because you want people to move from jobs to jobs right so in principle it's okay it's on, in, principle. in principle but the problem in malaysia is that 
the youth unemployment is most severely felt by college graduates or by graduates in general. So it's graduate youth unemployment who are not uh, who are basically not being able to earn as much as 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 the skills that they have or the degrees that they have. And I won't rattle out the statistics; they are well mm-hmm. known. So that's that is the issue with uh, with Malaysia. Now moving on to pulling up wages, um, the only way to do it. Well, maybe not the only way, but the main way to do it is to focus on investment. So Malaysia, as I mentioned earlier, has moved from being an investment-led economy to a consumption-led economy. Yeah. And so how do we go back to being an you know an you, investment-led economy? You, you bring in investments. You you improve the environment for investments to come in, not just foreign but also for domestic. And how do we do that? Oh, that's a separate conversation, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but but on, on, let me just say one thing on that. So a lot of governments instinctively go towards providing incentives for investment. Now, incentives have their place, but it's much more important for investors. And this is the evidence we find globally anywhere at every end. We've been doing this for the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years. Uh, is that horizontal measures such as rule of law, political stability, uh, uh, clean government. These are the things that attract uh, investors much more than than vertical interventions like providing incentives and tax reliefs. There is a place for vertical interventions, but they should be thought through. Okay, very important point to uh, consider. Um, and the other thing I want to discuss is actually digitalization, because that's a huge chapter in your economic monitor. And I think the pandemic, of course, accelerated digitalization, which is positive for growth. I don't think there's any argument there, right? Good for growth, productivity, employment, and poverty reduction and the government recognizes it because we've got a multiple policies we've got 12 malaysia plan malaysia digital blueprint financial sector blueprint public sector blueprint but it's our real problem here in this country the digital divide and what are the main constraints when it comes to adoption of digital technology here so so you're absolutely right that the pandemic did accelerate digitalization. And by the way, before I get into that, let me just say that we're talking of debt to GDP. Yeah. And the earlier point I was making, if you grow GDP, then that becomes less of an issue. And uh, using digitalization as a growth driver is uh, very, Malaysia is well positioned to, to do that. In fact, globally, we are in an era of unprecedented digitalization, right? And and it's Malaysia's moment to, to, to build on, on this. Um, so the pandemic did accelerate digitalization. So, for example, the ICT sector grew by twelve uh, percent in twenty twenty one. E commerce has grown. Internet usage has expanded, mm. so on and so forth. But you're absolutely right. The digital divide has also grown uh, along three dimensions. So, rural urban. So, the, ru- the rural urban gap of ten uh, percentage point in household internet usage, for example. Uh, firm types. So yeah. large firms are benefiting much more from the digitalization wave than than SMEs. And uh, there's not- no- notable gaps in the usage of uh, digital financial services among the B40, right? So so the, the these are the constraints. So the, the constraints are for SMEs, the top concern is really lack of financial resources. Mm. Uh, so I think the, the government needs to shift its focus from providing front-end and back-end sol- digitalization solutions for SMEs uh, to helping them lower cost. I'll give you one very practical example. So if you improve the, the strength and quality of, uh, of broadband, that would enable SMEs to access apps, for example, or other software easier on the cloud and, and reduce the cost. Yes. Right? So, so, so pivoting towards those sort of solutions would help. And, and for large firms, the main constraint is really skills, digital skills, in particular cybersecurity. Yeah. So addressing that would help. Okay, and Apuva, you know, Malaysia is not the only country where World Bank issues reports like this, right? And you've been in similar roles in Russia and East Africa. 
So I'm always curious. So do governments listen to the World Bank or is there a sense of <laughs> don't tell me what to do in my own house when reports like these are revealed? <laughs> No, I think the Malaysian government uh, is, is quite open. We've been fortunate and privileged uh, that, uh, that 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 they at least uh, take into listen to us. And of course, it's their prerogative. You know, they mm. they do what they need to do. But we are one of the many uh, many providers of uh, independent uh, sort of credible, hopefully credible analysis that that should factor into the government's uh, decision making. Well, we do hope that the many ministers involved in the economy are listening. But very. 30 seconds. Over. Yeah, so I wanted to give a shout out again to Izvan, my grab driver from yesterday. So what uh, what was so, ha- I felt so grateful and happy that I had this conversation because he ended on a note of optimism. You know, he used to be a contractor for Petronas. He's driving grab now, but he still sees hope and optimism with, the, with this government in place. And he hopes to quit his grab job and restart his company with his friends. Um, so... Let's see what happens. We wish him the very best and we wish all Malaysians also a better economic future. On that note, thank you for your time today. On The Breakfast Grill was Dr. Apuva Sanghi, World Bank Lead Economist for Malaysia. I'm Wong Xiaoning, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.